Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, Your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or or reward says the Lord of hosts thus the Lord thus says the Lord the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans men of stature shall come over to you and be yours they shall follow you they shall come over in chains and bow down to you they will plead with you saying surely God is in you and there is no other no God beside him Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are, to, are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw, 
near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue swear, shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in reading a portion of Psalm 33 responsively by whole verse. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. It is fitting for the just to be thankful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Sing praises unto him with a ten-stringed lute. Sing unto him a new song. Make skillful melody and cry aloud with joy. For the word of the Lord is true, and all his works are faithful. He loves righteousness and true judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the earth itself. He gathers the, water of the, the waters of the sea together as in a heap, and lays up the deep as in a treasure house. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Stand in awe of him, all you that dwell in the world. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him, and upon those who put their trust in his mercy. To deliver their soul from death, and to feed them in time of famine. Our soul has patiently waited for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. Our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have hoped in his holy name. Let your merciful kindness, O Lord, be upon us, as we have put our trust in you. Our second lesson is a reading from the first epistle of St. John, beginning at the fourth chapter, the first verse. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ had come in the, has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. 
Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. The word of the Lord. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I want to look together at our passage from Isaiah chapter 45. If you're wondering why I had us read the entire thing. What's unique about this passage is that in this passage, God is promising through Isaiah to bless his people, to bless Israel tremendously. And yet, also in this passage, God anticipates that Israel won't be happy about it. Even though God intends to bless them, they won't be happy about it. And let me explain why that is by providing just a little background. If you want to follow along with the insert in your bulletin, um, talk just a little bit about, about the history at this time. Isaiah was a prophet in Jerusalem in the late 8th and early 7th centuries B.C. He was a prophet during the time when the Assyrians were the superpower, and they were an enormous threat to everyone, to all the other nations. In fact, at this point, chapter 45 in the book of Isaiah The Lord has already allowed the northern kingdom of Israel, because of their unfaithfulness, to be defeated by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom of Judah, where Isaiah ministered, well, they hadn't been much more faithful to God and his commands than the northern kingdom had been. So in chapters 36 and 37 of Isaiah, the Assyrians had come really close to defeating the southern kingdom as well, had Judah's king not heeded Isaiah's advice. So God spared the southern kingdom of Judah from the Assyrians, but despite that, Isaiah followed this by having just prophesied in chapters 39 and 42 that Judah wouldn't survive the next superpower to rise up. And that would be the Babylonians. So after Isaiah prophesies there that Judah will be defeated by the Babylonians soon, someday, that's kind of what God's people are grappling with, are faced with. Even though it wouldn't come to pass for another hundred years, they're facing the fact that they will be defeated and taken into exile. Hard to get excited about, right? But... Despite this period of trial and punishment that Isaiah was saying awaited them, 
Much earlier in the book of Isaiah, it had already been established that God would one day in the future bring about an even greater future for his people. A greater future than they'd ever known. So let me just quote just a few of those prophecies from early in Isaiah. I think some of them may ring a bell to you. And in chapter 9, Isaiah prophesies that while a period of anguish awaits God's people, the exile, that in a latter time, God would make their land glorious. He said, the people who've walked in darkness will see a great light. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Isaiah was speaking of the Messiah, of course, the Savior King who would come from the line of David. He said, Two chapters after that, chapter 11, he said, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie with the young goat. And finally, just one more brief one from chapter 16. There Isaiah says of the Messiah, Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. So the stage I'm trying to set to you is that when God's people learn years later, right, in chapter 42, that they're going to have to go through this exile, the way they comforted themselves, was with these prophecies about the reign of the Messiah King. They clung to the hope that after they or their offspring endured exile in a foreign land, that this Davidic king would arise and make everything right, and everything would be wonderful. But while that may have been their hope, that that's what would come right after exile, that wasn't God's plan. At least it wasn't the next step of his plan. As we know, the Messiah, Jesus, wouldn't come for more than 500 years after the exile. Instead, what the Lord has begun to reveal to them just before our passage opens, the Lord's declared his intention to rescue his people from exile, to return them from their land, not through the Messiah, but through the Persian conqueror, a foreigner named Cyrus, a pagan king. Now, they'll be permitted to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, but they will still be in subjugation to a foreign power. And God and Isaiah anticipate the people receiving this is not so great news. Apparently, the end of exile will not be the time for the Messiah King. The Lord makes no mention of the Messiah here at all. Rather, He even adds to the scandal as our passage opens, chapter 45. God calls Cyrus his anointed. By this time, that was language that was only used in reference to the Messiah. So not only is God saying, I'm not going to give you the Messiah at that point. 
God is referring to this pagan king as his anointed. Right? God says, he continues there, verse 1 and 2, that he will grasp Cyrus' right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. This is what the people had hoped for the Messiah, right? That he would open doors before Cyrus, that gates may not be closed. In other words, God is promising to be the supernatural force behind all of Cyrus's military campaigns and ensure that Cyrus prevails. Verse 2, I will go before you and level the exalted places, the mountains. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze, referring to Babylon, and cut through the bars of iron. So Isaiah is telling the people in chapter 45 that yes, the exile will come to an end, and they will be permitted to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. In fact, the Persians are even going to pay for that rebuild project. But as a people, they will still lack the power, the comfort, the freedom of self-determination that they had enjoyed at their kingdom's height under King David. And so for most people, the, this promise of being returned from exile, while it should be a, a cause for celebration, right? For Israel, the fruit of unmet expectations. Well, that's always resentment, right? When our expectations aren't met. Isaiah foresees God's people being pretty darn ticked about this plan of God's being indignant about it. So skipping down to verse 9, the Lord goes ahead and preempts that response of ingratitude and frustration, saying, Woe to him who strives with me, with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. God is saying to his people, Would you really take issue with the plan I have for you? Would you really oppose it? Do you trust me that little? Then he goes on to highlight the absurdity of creatures telling the one who created them that his plan stinks, right? The rest of verse 9, does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work doesn't even have handles. I don't know if that's like a pottery insult or what. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, ask me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and what I'm going to do with with my creation? God's saying, do you really think that your ideas and your plan is better than my plan for you? Do you trust me that little? Well, apparently they did. So in what follows, God reassures his people that everything he does is with their well-being in mind. In verse 17, the Lord reaffirms his promise to save Israel with a, quote, everlasting salvation. But even before that, in verse 14, God says that that this plan will benefit, God's plan with Cyrus will actually benefit the Israelites materially. He says, quote, that the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. Why is it God's plan? Why was this God's plan to do it this way? Well, it seems that part of God's purpose in anointing Cyrus to rescue his people back into the promised land 
was to prefigure the salvation that he eventually planned to bring through the Messiah, Jesus, five centuries later. Because just like the people in, in, this, in Isaiah's day were, were scandalized that God would save them with Cyrus and allow them to be under foreign rule, as we talk about a lot, what people had come to expect of the salvation that Jesus would bring, that the Messiah would bring, was pretty different than what Jesus actually came to do. Quite different, right? We talk about this a lot here, that the people's expectation for the Messiah had, had always been that he would usher in a worldly kingdom and free them from foreign governance, which by Jesus' time was the Romans. But Jesus doesn't meet that expectation at all, right? And the Romans end up killing him. Instead of saving his people by conquering and by violence like a worldly king, Jesus' intention was instead to bring a spiritual kingdom, as he says to Pilate, a kingdom not of this world. A kingdom that conquers not through power and coercion, but through love. A kingdom that operates by, rather than changing people's external circumstances to be the way they want them to be, Jesus' plan was to change people's character to develop an intimate relationship with us so that we might be able to be content in any external circumstance. Whether we like the ruler or not. And so perhaps you can begin to see the wisdom of God using Cyrus, you know, a half millennium before, to try to prepare his people that his plans for them and their, their ultimate salvation actually differed pretty significantly from the fantasy of salvation that they'd let their hearts get set on, that they had come to believe God would do for them. It was not only different, though, but it was better. That God's plan for them would exceed anything that they had ever imagined. But it's also important that we remember that, that the salvation God brings, it's also never singularly purposed. It's for us, right? But it's not just for us. This was the case with Israel, right? His intention to deliver them from exile was not to be solely for their benefit alone. If it was, he probably would have raised up the Messiah then and and toppled everybody and had this great kingdom, right? But God's hope was that what he would do through them would be used to draw people of all nations of the world to them. This is what verse 14 was describing. But also before that, in, in, uh, before that in verse 5, God says of Cyrus, right? He says, I'm going to equip you though you don't even know me. Why? Verse 6, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. God is going to use Cyrus in working in, in all those events, hopefully as a witness to his greatness. How would that work? Well, as Isaiah scholar Alec Motyer observes, he, he says that, that God is, think about it, God is predicting the great per the identity of this great Persian conqueror more than 100 years, more than 150 years before it even happens? He's not just predicting it. He's predicting him by name. Right? 
any God who can do that, the logic follows, must be the most high and only true God. None of the other gods were predicting it. None of the other gods were calling out Cyrus' name a century and a half before he was born. And this clarifies what we've seen from verse 14, that, you know, that God's salvation isn't just for Israel, but it's for others. It, at, the, at verse 14, it's talking about all the nations, flo- they'll be flocking to Judah, right? casting their riches upon them. It's not because Judah will have defeated them militarily. No, but because they have spiritual hunger and they see that Judah has something they don't have. They want Judah's God. They will honor Judah, the Israelites, because they seek to know their God. So this is all meant to remind the Israelites that while God's plans are what is best for them and and he cares deeply about their well-being, that that isn't God's only aim. And this is a good reminder for us. That God cares more, God cares about more people than just the Israelites. That God cares more about more people than just us. He intended salvation to be not only for Israel, but for all the people of all the nations. In verse 20, God tells all the nations to assemble themselves and come and to quit praying to gods that can't save them and to discover that there is no other God besides him. And this, remember, is not some new plan by God. This was God's plan all along, right? With the calling of Abraham. God set Abraham apart and his people, the Israelites that came from him, to, quote, be a blessing to all nations. He's not changing the game. So what God's people will have forgotten in their frustration at his plans for them is that, number one, his ways are always higher than their ways, than our ways that he's still looking out for them, even if it's not what they had fantasized about, but also that his blessing and rescue of his children was never meant to stop with them. It was meant to multiply on to others. As we said, if God had only had that first goal in mind, just the benefit of Israel, he probably would have just gone ahead and done it and made life perfect for them, right? Thank goodness he didn't, or we wouldn't be sitting here. We wouldn't know Jesus. Well, the reality that God is concerned about others, kind of the tension of that, is that it means that God's plans are often going to differ from what our sinful hearts would prefer. Because our sinful hearts only care about ourselves. The best illustration of this is this tension. It comes from um, the story of the transfiguration in the Gospels. I've included it on the bottom of your insert if you want to. We'll review it just briefly. It's included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but I've given you the Luke version. You remember the transfiguration is that time when Jesus took his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to a mountaintop. And suddenly, once they were there, Jesus' appearance was altered. His face and his clothing became a dazzling white. He was transfigured. That's what the word means. And Moses and Elijah from long ago appeared there with him. Amazing vision. 
Well, God did that for Peter, James, and John to give them a glimpse of Jesus' true, full glory as the Son of God that otherwise was hidden, right, to the world in his earthly ministry. He went ahead and gave them a glimpse of what we one day will behold when he returns. But what I want to get to is Peter's reaction when it all starts to end. Because Peter doesn't want it to end. Peter wants to stay on that mountaintop forever. In verse 33, he says, Master, it's good that we, we are here. Good job, Jesus. I like this. I like this plan. He says, let us make three tents so that we can, you know, make a stay of it. One for you. I'll make one for Moses even and Elijah. Don't want them to be left out. It says he said this not knowing what he said. But of course the Lord's plan was not for them to stay up there forever. And after it's over, the next day we see why. We see why the Lord wouldn't let them remain up on the mountain forever. Because when they come down the mountain, there is a great crowd waiting on them in great need. The point being that God blessing Peter, James, and John wasn't just for them. He didn't intend it to stop with them, but instead to then lead to a multiplication of blessings through them to others who didn't have an inkling of God's glory and love for them. Just like God's plan to deliver people using Cyrus, right? It was for all nations, a witness to all nations. Well, what is true for Israel and true for Peter is also true for us. If we've been brought into a relationship with the risen Lord, the Lord has done that, yes, because he loves us more than we could ever grasp. But he has also done it for the sake of others, make no mistake. And yet the, the reaction of Peter not wanting to go back down that mountain, it reflects a, a tension, even a temptation, I want to say, that can occur for any of us once we receive a glimpse kind of of our eternal destiny, of the end game, right? Once, you know, Scripture has to kind of give us a view of how it's all going to end and the glory of Jesus, frankly, just to keep us encouraged and hopeful, right? When things get rough in this life, like we need the revelations that scripture gives us of that it's going to be okay in the long run, right? That Jesus will make everything right. We absolutely need that to endure the hardships of life faithfully and remain hopeful. But the problem is once we've been given a glimpse, it can make us wish that we could have all of that right now. And even feel almost entitled to it. Right? And this desire to kind of have it all right now, all that God promises right now, is frankly what makes all of us extremely vulnerable to false teaching. Right? In our second lesson today, St. John was writing to churches that had been exposed to a particular false teaching about what the Christian gospel really is. And I won't get into that one. But what I've noticed is that in our own day, all the false teachings that really tickle people's ears, that people flock to and that put butts in the seats in churches, 
All of those false teachings are promising something they can't deliver. They're promising people can have it all right now. Right? This is true of the prosperity gospel, right? that God wants to bless us materially in ways beyond our, beyond our wildest dreams, but also beyond what we need, right? That, oh, you must not have much faith if you haven't gotten your private jet yet type of thing. But if you send a check here, you will get that private jet. I'll pray for you. Prosperity gospel. There's the word of faith gospel that's all about these miracles. It gives this impression that God is, is just waiting to take away any suffering we're experiencing, particularly illness, through a miracle. If we would just believe, if we would just claim it, right? Just claim it and believe. And if it's not happening, it's on you, right? You must not be believing hard enough, right? It's all, hey, you can have it all right now write this check <laughs> then there's there's liberal christianity right among its many heresies includes an agreement with society that that god command god's commands are actually infringing upon our freedom and that instead any human desire and impulse we have we should just we should just act on it's going to be good so long as it doesn't seem to hurt anybody so it offers this this false promise of spiritual liberation that actually kind of you know, moral, a moral code is what's holding us back from really experiencing true freedom, which is what society believes predominantly these days. So it's popular. All right, get God to baptize that idea. Great. And there's Christian nationalism, right, which believes that, that we're special in comparison to other human beings in other parts of the world, that God loves Americans more than he loves other people. And that we're justified by any means necessary to protect and secure this supposed birthright. Heresy. Right? So from the middle, the left, the right, all these false teachings, they're all promising something they can't really deliver. Right? Which is to have everything that we don't like in the world put to right right now. All these false gospels exploit our frustration with things not being the way we want them to be and our longing for it to be made right. And what they all have in common is that every single one of them is about me and nobody else, right? I mean, sure, you, you know, word of faith, you may go do miracles for somebody else, but it's really for your own grandiosity, right? Feeling great about yourself. It's all about me, and it's not about loving our enemies. The gospel truth, the gospel truth is that God loves you, but it's not all about you. God loves us, but it's not all about us. He intends for our salvation instead to, be a, to, ben to benefit us, but to be a witness to others as well, to benefit them. And for that to happen, that second step, well, that's where the rubber meets the road because that requires sacrifice on our parts. It doesn't take any sacrifice to pray the prayer, say, Jesus, give me a ticket to heaven. It takes sacrifice to seek to be a blessing to others. There's this author that, named Paul Miller that a friend of mine put me on to. He 
He calls the daily living that we're called to as Christians, he calls it the J-curve. I put a little diagram in your, your insert. He, he uses the shape of the letter J for Jesus to talk about the course of Jesus' life, right? Because, because Jesus lived his life for the sake of others and not just himself, and that required him to die, to go down like a J does, before he could rise up. Well, Miller explains that God has called us to do the same. I believe it's kind of like his third, third one on the diagram there. That he's called us to do the same because for us to truly love anyone will require that we sacrifice, that we go down, that we humble ourselves and not just live for ourselves. In order for others to be blessed, we have to sacrifice something of ourselves. Do you believe that? Let me put it even more bluntly. Through Jesus' life, death and resurrection, we learned that for evil to be weakened in somebody else's life, that requires that we ourselves enter into some kind of suffering. Right? For Jesus to weaken evil in our lives, right, bring us into a relationship with God because of our sin, he had to suffer. The same is true. If we want to truly love others in a biblical love sort of way, not in the hallmark love sort of way, but in a biblical love sort of way, for evil to be weakened in their life is going to require some level of suffering on our part. And pondering that. We can talk in life group about whether we agree with that, but that seems to fit with what Jesus had to do and what he calls us to do, this J-curve. And the reality, though, is that this is not something any of us would ever do on our own, right? Sacrificing our own comfort, security, our rights, our freedom, to help somebody else flourish, to benefit somebody else, our sin ain't wired that way. And that's why we need to ask God to help us. We need Christ in us to help us say, not my will, Lord. My plans, I mean, I like them. I think they have some merit, but they're really not. Your plan is better, right? Help me to be a blessing. Help me to be Christ to my spouse, my kids, my brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, right, from last week, my neighbors. And let me tell you, when we pray that prayer, God, help me to love as Christ loved. That is the one prayer that God will always answer. He will always answer that prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.